interview with Anne Magnuson on the 5th of February, 2023. Anne is a woman of many talents, as beautifully encapsulated in the liner notes of her 2016 album, Dream Girl. The liner notes, abridged, are as follows. Anne Magnuson is a writer, actress, singer, musician, performer, whose eclectic resume traverses the entertainment landscape like few others. She has acted in Hollywood blockbusters, off-Broadway plays, TV sitcoms, and indie films, fronted various bands, written for numerous publications, and has presented her original performance art pieces at several major museums. Born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia, Anne went to New York City in 1978. After a junior year abroad in London during the punk heyday of 76 to 77, and soon became part of the seminal art, music, and performance scene that exploded in downtown New York City in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s. There she managed the now infamous Neo Dada Cabaret and Art Space, Club 57. She performed regularly in downtown theaters, galleries, and clubs, including the Kitchen, the Mud Club, Danceteria, the Pyramid Club, and CBGB. As a film actress, Magnuson has appeared in a wild variety of roles in major Hollywood films, such as The Hunger with David Bowie, Making Mr. Right, Panic Room, Desperately Seeking Susan, and the cult classic Cabin Boy. Magnuson was also a regular cast member of the early 1990s ABC TV sitcom Anything But Love, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Richard Lewis. Her characters are many and vivid. But at heart, Magnuson is a suburban Appalachian Dorothy, wandering through a strange new world, marveling at the technicolor beauty and rank absurdity of it all. Oh, the sun don't care who is president. No, the sun don't care who is relevant. Oh, the <laughs> it comes from the movie Heathers. Uh, oh, okay. We have themed sections, meaningful passages, hot probs. Okay. Are they original or did they remake it? They did, but we're original purists for sure. <laughs> I remember seeing the original in theaters and I liked it. Christian Slater, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Winona Ryder. Right. It was very fun. We were just looking for a way to set our Talking About Movies podcast apart from all the other Talking About Movies podcasts. <laughs> oh, well, it definitely does that. <laughs> you know what? In show business, you generally are paid in puke on some metaphoric level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it definitely felt meaningful in that way, especially because sometimes it does feel like you're being paid in puke with the female-driven stories we get. <laughs> yeah, even.
the good ones, there's some backlash or some fuckery involved. <laughs> we'll never end. Well, maybe it's some ideal metaverse, right? <laughs> I pulled out all this Making This Direct stuff that I had pulled out months ago last year when Susan Seidelman and I did the commentary for this new Blu-ray that's coming out on Kino Lorber. Yeah. And I'm going to have DVDs uh, for sale on my website. Signed and numbered. No, not numbered. <laughs> We love commentary. That's great. We do often talk about how film commentary seems to be a lost art or it's an art that's fading away. So thanks for keeping it alive. Oh, we love it too. We go down rabbit holes like we watched every Robert Altman movie. I've seen many of them, watched all of them, and then watched them all again with the commentary. Yes. Same with Werner Herzog, and we feel Werner Herzog should do commentary on every movie. <laughs> oh my yes. gosh, can you imagine? Yes, that should be a feature on every DVD in existence. Although I also think Spike Lee could do a commentary oh. on every movie. That would be so fun. I would watch movies with just different directors talking about them. Yeah, I would love that. I love <laughs> A commentary. It's amazing that doesn't happen more, but somebody with dollar signs in their eyes will figure out a way to monetize that concept, right. and it probably won't be us. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Far away. Well, yeah, let's start with Making Mr. Right. Can you tell us about your experience on Making Mr. Right and how it all came together? Well, it came together when I was called into audition for the part that Glenn Headley played. And oh. I knew Susan Seidelman from doing Desperately Seeking Susan. And she had seen my performances. I got to New York in 1978 for the last part of my senior semester. I was on a work-study program with an off-Broadway theater called Ensemble Studio Theater and got to know a lot of people in the industry that way. But I was spending all my nights down at CBGB's and <laughs> Max's Kansas City and got to know the downtown crowd that way. I was more interested in more offbeat theater things, stuff that would be called avant-garde or experimental, at least at that period of time. Things that definitely deviated from the normal, traditional play. I just wasn't much interested in that. And I saw Squat Theater and Booster Group and a lot of bands and dance. There was a lot of dance. I was very, very immersed in the downtown scene and I moved down there. I was still working at Ensemble Studio Theater as the assistant to the artistic director. I did a play there. I directed a play. But I got involved in managing Club 57 and doing my own performances all over town in different clubs and galleries and even museums. And Susan knew of me that way, and I was cast in Desperately Seeking Susan. Well, you know, I actually auditioned to play Madonna's friend. There are some good pictures that Susan found. She found the, the audition tape, but it's so degraded, but she grabbed some screen grabs. So around the time of the Making Mr. Right DVD, whatever, you don't call it a premiere, what do you call it, a launch, but it drops. <laughs> I will post those on my Instagram, but they're pretty funny. Like, yeah. I completely forgot about the wacky shit I did for that audition. So I didn't get that part, but that was the uh, cameo as the cigarette girl. And got to know Susan and, and knew Risa Brayman from, she took my job when I quit Ensemble Studio Theater. And Billy Hopkins was somebody I knew because he went to Denison University that I went to. So Billy and Risa did a lot of the casting for the more interesting films that were going on at that time. And I got called in to read for what eventually became the Glenn Headley part. Trish. And I really wanted that one. So I was surprised when I got the call to come in and read for the main part. I thought, oh, this is never going to happen. <laughs> I saw very established actresses 
coming and going from that that audition building oh, wow. and i thought no but i'll, I'll do it you know <laughs> it was shocking that i got the part so we went to miami and shot it there and the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> it's not shocking to us that you got the part you're so magnetic in that role oh that's very nice of you well in the commentary susan said i cast you because of your persona the way i cast madonna and richard hell that makes it sound like I wasn't acting, and I was, so that was not playing me. I mean, I'm much more animated and goofier than that character, so it was very challenging for me to strip all that away and do less and less and less. I was uh, very jealous of Laurie Metcalf when I saw oh. the film. I thought, that's the part I want to do, you know, yeah. uh, goofy. And, and so when I got on to Anything But Love, I got to really play that up, that more daffy oh. part of me, which is fun, you know. I was more of the straight person in Making Mr. Right, and believe me, I am so grateful for that part. In retrospect, it's incredible that I was given the opportunity to star in this film and play a nuanced working woman that wasn't, you know, the bitch boss or the <laughs> the object of derision on some level, you know? That right. Mm -hmm. She was very sensitive to having a female protagonist that certainly did not fall into the same tropes of movie making at that period of time as much, you know, that, I mean, the mainstream yeah. stuff, yeah. which is maybe why it wasn't a big hit, <laughs> like the people preferred Mannequin or something, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I, I think it holds up. I watched it last year for the first time in years when Susan had reached out to me and told me about the Kino Lorber Blu-ray and doing the commentary. I was very charmed by it, and I told her, I think it's this is really good. And we had a really good time revisiting it and doing the commentary on it. She did talk about the persona thing. I didn't really get into any details in the commentary so much. Every actor has a persona they bring to a role, but I don't think that was me. <laughs> Actually, I did a Amy and David Sedaris play called The Book of Liz, and that felt a little bit more like me. I mean, she was a really goofy Amish character. <laughs> the hell out of the compound and live her life and make cheese balls. I put in fake teeth for it. And Actually, when I was on stage, I realized who am I channeling here? And I realized it was Gioletta Messina in La Strada. <laughs> but I had done plays since second grade. I was doing plays my whole life and musicals and as a dancer, as a singer, as an actress. I played Helen Keller when I was 16 oh, at the wow. community theater. We had a very, very top-notch community theater in Charleston, West Virginia, believe it or not. That area was known as the chemical center of the world oh. <laughs> and there were 150 phds who lived in that valley because of these chemical plants they had a very thriving arts community a symphony a light opera guild then a straight play company and lots of museums and art shows so even though I come from West Virginia, it was hardly bug tussle, you know. <laughs> there were a lot of opportunities, and I was very lucky that I, I could do so many plays and got incredible reviews for The Miracle Worker, and, and I thought, well, maybe I'll pursue this. I was also interested in journalism, so mm. I pursued that as well in college, and I went to London for my junior year abroad to oh, wow. play there, and I studied theater and cinema. That was my somewhat worthless 
Bachelor of Fine Arts. <laughs> <laughs> but I learned a lot, and by the time I got to New York, I was really ready to jump in. But I, I found that the stuff being done uptown was really square and boring for the most part. And I loved the bands down at CBGB, you know, Betty Smith Television. That was before I got there, but I had all those records and was avidly following what was happening in New York. And I was in London in 76, 77, watching the whole punk thing happen yeah. and, and going to see the Royal Shakespeare Company. So this is a very long-winded way of saying I had a lot of experience before I did Making Mr. Right, and I had done several films. I had a different kind of experience than the people at Steppenwolf, but it was just as valid. Mm -hmm. Maybe more Absolutely. so because, yeah. you know, I was fighting people on stage <laughs> when I did my heavy metal band, but then I do the folk band and created my own repertory company with myself <laughs> and my friends, and we did things every night. We had created a whole vaudeville circuit downtown <laughs> wow. at the Pyramid Club, Danceteria, make videos, and I had done so much stuff before getting into making Mr. Roy, and I was 30 when that movie came out, and I remember looking for an agent a bonafide, you know, Hollywood uh -huh. agent. He said, well, 30's a little old, you know, uh -huh. it's better if you started at 19. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I started at eight. <laughs> it's a good thing I didn't start at 19 because, you know, the Me Too, you hear these stories. Ironically, it was safer for a woman in show business in this really unsafe environment in downtown New York where you really, mm -hmm. you know, you uh -huh. could get killed just walking down the street. But creatively, the sky was the limit. I had total freedom to create whatever I wanted to do. And I did Shakespeare plays with friends down there. And I did all kinds of things, which working at Ensemble Studio Theater, I watched actors, you know, from the mainstream world come in and out and audition for things. And because I was the assistant to the, the artistic director, I was privy to hear what they were saying about these actors. Oh. And I thought, oh no, that is not <laughs> for me. Because for the most part, it was still and you could argue still is a uh, industry run by men it was a very limited palette for women except for a chosen few and i think that's mm -hmm. still the case maybe less so but now i like, think so our version of being downtown was creating things in 3d that people are now doing on the internet so you guys have your podcast people mm -hmm. are creating their own videos you've got more agency because you're your own boss and once I got to be my own boss real early on, you can't give that up. I auditioned for Saturday Night Live, and, and according to my friends who worked there, I almost got in. They picked Nora Dunn instead. Huh. But then years after, I heard stories of like, ooh, I'm glad I did not do that. Then after Making Mr. Right came out, I got asked to do it again. I don't know if I was supposed to audition again, but I had a very important meeting up there. I had heard too many stories about how you had to fight to get your material and the women right. and the gay men that I knew had worked there. It was like, no, I cannot give up my freedom. I mean, it could have gone one of two ways. It's a huge success or it is public humiliation that you will never come back from. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not, no, I'm too old to gamble like that. But this idea that if you start at 19, it's because you're this supplicant, you know, you're easier to manipulate. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, it just worked out the way it did because of who I was and what I wanted to do. I was always more drawn to outsiders and avant-garde theater. Once I got to college and learned about Alfred Jarry and Dadaism and surrealism and Samuel Beckett and all of that, I was completely sold. 
was like, this stuff is for me. I'm not interested in helping them do their production of Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in trouble for not showing up to break down the set. <laughs> I really got in serious trouble for that because all theater majors are required to come and break down this set. And I'm like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> you know, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> rules. I'm listening to Richard Hell and Patti Smith and your dolls prior to that. And so it's like, no, I'm not going to play your game. <laughs> they don't break down their own sets. <laughs> well, there were a lot of power politics. That was the main thing I learned from the theater department at Denison University. It was like, why are we paying tuition for me to learn what I have to do out there? Teach me something in scene study class, not this nonsense. But you know what? That was part of the education and it all proved to be... Well, I'm still alive. Let's <laughs> I was just curious about growing up. There were like adults in your life, people that encouraged your art, yes. any mentors that you might have had that made you see what's possible to do with art and to pursue well, that path. Well, yes, I, I could tell you there were quite a few influences. My mother was very much interested in all the arts. She was a journalism major and she had worked at the local newspapers and the radio programs and then she got into community theater as well and she took me and my brother to the children's museum where there was puppetry so we did a puppetry course that's really where i learned storytelling my parents loved to watch old movies and television hmm. i was born in 56 my first four or five years i was exposed to the golden age of television basically vaudeville had moved to tv there were you know masters of the craft sid caesar there's a show called your show of shows and then you had i love lucy and you had all these great early tv shows and variety shows that were on reruns and there was really good children's programming. I was just inundated with cool storytellers. Soupy Sales was a character, well, he was a man who was from West Virginia and he had a TV show for kids and that was highly influential. <laughs> it was its own wacky Dada-esque thing. They showed a lot of clips from silent movies, TV showed movies all the time. My mother had the TV on all the time. So there was a lot of stuff that was influencing me. People were telling stories and, and entertaining people. And my grandmother was a huge influence. My grandmother Magnuson in Morgantown, which is in the north part of the state, I'm from the southwest part. We drove up there all the time. The radio was always on, so we have radio programming. So I was really, as I said, inundated with a lot of influences from all these different places and there was teachers uh, my second grade teacher was a big influence my fourth grade teacher played as peter paul and mary records which we would then sing along to these protest songs that <laughs> you know were very anti-establishment and that influenced me greatly we got magazines like national geographic and time and i read those as kid i mean it, when it started out i just looked at the pictures and i read the captions and i read the articles and was really into magazines and newspapers and my brother subscribed to the early Rolling Stone. You learn a lot from all that stuff. <laughs> and then the hippies came into the picture when I was around eight or nine or ten and the anti-war protests and that infiltrated the culture and the music, TV shows, the movies, and that had a big influence. You know, rebellion was a really potent concept and I took to it. 
Yeah, (laughs) it fits well. It's a good fit. (laughs) You mentioned on a previous podcast I was listening to that you were sort of offended by Danny Boyle's Pistol miniseries. Oh. Which I, I watched that too, and it had all the trappings of a of a modern big budget biopic. But I was wondering if there was a film or TV show that you thought got the scene right or captured it in any sort of correct way. You know what? There's only one thing I've seen, and it wasn't from my scene. It's a movie called Control about <gasps> Joy Division. Yes, oh. I've seen that. I loved it. <laughs> Brilliant. That is the only, and believe me, I haven't seen all of them, so I couldn't tell you, but that's the only thing I've seen that captured a period of time that I lived in that I felt was completely authentic. I did not feel that from the pistol. (laughs) (laughs) I did really like the archival footage he put in. (laughs) That almost feels like cheating, right? (laughs) Like that stuff was good. The thing is, you put that in, and for those of us who are there, then you show these actors, and you know they're doing their best, but uh-uh. <laughs> why don't shoot it on 16 millimeter, light it like that? Uh, yeah. Everybody was too clean, and Chrissy Hine did not look anything like the pictures you see of Chrissy Hine. <laughs> it's just too cleaned up. Yeah. And that really does a disservice to what that period of time was. It was rough <laughs> being, being in London during the 76, 77, I had not been exposed to a class system like that. There is a class system in America, but it's nothing like that in England, and particularly at that time. It was so clear to me, and I got very little of an allowance, so I was kind of in with the people who were. (laughs) London at that time was, wow, that was depressing. I got the sense like there is no mobility here. Wherever you are born into, you're stuck. And at least in America, at least at that time, or at least what I believed, where there's a will, there's a way. And in London, no way. Right. Mm. There's a great book that a writer named Nick Kent wrote. I forget the title, but the subtitle is A 70s Memoir, and I highly recommend it. He's a really good writer. He wrote for The Face and uh, NME, and he has another book of pieces he wrote for those magazines. But he really captured the feeling of London at that time. When I read the book, I thought, boy, this really, really gets it. And that movie Control about Joy Division felt very real. I'm always joking with John, we watch things, and they're old movies, and I'll say, this reminds me of the East Village, the late 70s, this is the East Village, and one of them is this documentary. Well, it's it's part documentary, and there's a character that is an actor, but he was also a terrible alcoholic. It's about the Bowery bums and that dead-end lifestyle. It's called On the Bowery, done in the 50s, late 50s, I believe. And that really captured what New York was like when I got there in the Bowery. The first time I was on the Bowery, it was a skid row, basically. I was shocked, absolutely shocked. And when we were watching that, I thought, you know, I get the sensation that any minute Lydia Lunch and Beth and Scott <laughs> no waivers are going to walk right into one of these skid row bars because that was the vibe there. Those kinds of environments are so dystopian, but the rents are cheap and you get enough people who are on the same wavelength as you are and you can make magic in those environments because you don't have to work a real job <laughs> and you get the like-mindedness 
the excitement of being around other people who like the same things you do, hate the same things you do. <laughs> That's so make, important. <laughs> make movies and make theater and make music. Those scenes exist. That Sex Pistols scene existed, but they didn't capture that, yeah. I didn't think. Anyway, another long-winded answer. No, it's wonderful. This is great. I didn't, I didn't have coffee before, which okay. is always dangerous. <laughs> Susan Seidelman's first feature, Smithereens, starring mm -hmm. Susan Berman, who played my daughter. Oh, my, 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 my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my sister, <laughs> my sister and Mr. Wright. We're still friends. Oh. That film really captures what the East Village was like, this emptiness, this desperation that existed alongside a sense of ennui and nihilism. There was a mixture. I think my group of people at Club 57 brought a lot of optimism into the picture, but it could be quite bleak. But I think Susan Seidelman's Smithereens really captures that scene because it was authentic. I mean, it was done at the time, so it wasn't looking back. It captured the moment at the moment and very well. And I'm in a film that Sarah Driver did called Sleepwalk, which was several years later. I think we shot it in 84, it came out in 85. And that captures this, this surreal quality of the city that the downtown part of New York was very, very abandoned mm. and eerie. <laughs> and she gets that. She gets that very well in that film and, and shot in color and Jim Jarmusch helped shoot it and it's, oh. that was a, a nice project to be part of that was right before Desperately Seeking Susan around the same time Desperately Seeking Susan gets it but it's a more whimsical right. look at it it's a cleaned up candy colored version of it but it's authentic in its own way. And then Making Mr. Right is something that I know Susan said she wanted to do something quite different mm -hmm. and going to Miami and kind of playing with this retro futurism vibe right. of uh, space travel and robots and creating <laughs> a romantic comedy in that environment. It's a nice change of pace. And a lot of it was dictated by the screenwriters, Lori Frank and Floyd Byers. But I'd found out through the commentary I did with Susan that it was her idea. It was original set in New York or somewhere like that and she wanted to shoot in Miami and it was great to be down there I'd never been to yeah. Miami and we shot in 1986 and nobody had discovered Miami at that point Ooh. so it was really cool it was skanky in parts <laughs> on South Beach but you still had all the old Jewish folks who had retired down there were still there. All the deco buildings were completely intact. They were a, a little worse for wear, and, and there was a lot of crime, of course, but all the architecture was exactly as it was. There was no monetizing of Miami by the Europeans or by any of the entrepreneurs. So capitalism had taken a holiday from, <laughs> from Miami. And, and when capitalism takes a holiday, it's a great environment for creativity. Wow, that's such a cool quote right there. Right? I loved all the 60s buildings, the Fountain Blue, the Eden Rock. Miami in the 50s and 60s was the happening place. That was all gone, but the buildings were still there and everything was intact. It hadn't been changed. I mean, it's all been ruined, I'm sure, and turned into like fake mid-century modern oligarch crap, you know? <laughs> I haven't been there in a while, but I love it and that incredible color of the ocean very much mm. like you know in the movie midnight cowboy 
Mm-hmm. He's daydreaming about going to Miami, and at the end, they finally get there. It was like that. Wow. <laughs> it was a dream. Having my own sort of midnight cowboy experience because I was going from this harshness of downtown New York into this bright sunlight and these beautiful deco buildings. And my grandmother, one of her favorite TV shows was The Jackie Gleason Show, which shot in Miami Beach. So growing up as a kid, I watched Miami. <laughs> <laughs> In its heyday, you know, being televised, this show being televised, the best part about being in show business is you get to have these adventures and you get to go to different places and meet new people. That's my favorite part about it. And Susan brought in great designers. Barbara Ling did the production design. Ed Lockman is an incredible DP. Oh, it's so great to watch a movie where everything's lit beautifully. Yeah. It's not in all these horrible dark shadows everything is so darkly lit now i'll get screeners or watch something on the plane i'm like can't they lighten this up it serves no purpose so boring why don't you like get a new aesthetic folks (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i'm so with you on that yes to not have to watch everything with the lights off because (laughs) you can't see what's happening i grew up in florida and i really loved seeing miami portrayed in the movie and yeah it just like the bright sunlight and i mean the sun is just like relentless in florida yeah it was it was great it was really wonderful until the shoot went a little bit longer than expected of course they generally do but boy once we started to get into june and that humidity came in i thought i was gonna die but we finished it and (laughs) (laughs) but i loved going there i was there for three months and i stayed in the hotel they put me up and i didn't leave so when i came back to new york boy that was a bit of a rude awakening (laughs) (laughs) yeah so then i was more open to spending more time in california just needed a change of pace but yeah the sunshine is a very addictive yeah (laughs) oh my god the thrift stores in miami in the mid 80s (gasps) oh really my boyfriend i had at the time we went about a year afterwards and they were still good and he found a small Roy Lichtenstein print in the thrift store. Oh my god. Oh wow. Signed. And Whoa. I'm sure that's sold off. I mean we broke up years <laughs> eons ago. Another person who moved to Miami and I didn't see him when I was shooting the film, but I saw him that next year when I went back was Tomato Duplenty, who was in a band called The Screamers. And he's one of those guys who always lived in a town years before other people caught on to Oh, nice. And he took us to see the famous stripper, Tempest Storm, at this famous strip joint in Miami called What's Nude Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But it was kind of sad. They were showing porno films or shorts and then she'd come out and do her burlesque routine with an incredible amount of elegance. Mm-hmm. She was easily in her late 60s and oh, wow. still looked great. We met her afterwards. I've got pictures with her and signed. But she's a legend. So people like that were still around and it was just great to go to a town have an excuse to live there and get a paycheck on top of it and explore it explore it and explore the people and the culture and there was great seafood restaurants glenn headley would lead a lot of these outings to these different places we went to key largo susan and i and susan's boyfriend at the time john clifford who shot some of the stills we went to see the singer donovan oh wow in Fort Lauderdale so we drove up to Fort Lauderdale in this nothing little 
club that was on the second story of this old clapboard house. It was just a bizarre place. I thought, boy, what's Donovan doing? <laughs> it was so intimate to watch this legend perform in this small space. There were so many magical experiences that I associate with doing that film. And even when I was looking through all this stuff that I pulled out before we started to talk, photographs of me and Ben Masters. And Ben, I just found out a few weeks ago that he died. And I was so hoping that when this Blu-ray came out, there might be a, a good way to reach out and say, hey, I really loved working with you. So time, time is uh, taking away a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. No time to waste. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you had such great chemistry with Glenn Headley in the movie. Can you talk about working with her? Glenn and John were very successful in New York theater, and they come from Chicago, Steppenwolf highly highly successful and critically acclaimed and i could see them holding their own with all those people at the cocktail party in all about eve <laughs> so i think glenn was suspicious of my standing as a quote-unquote performance artist but i tried to tell her right away oh that's just a word it's convenient to get you to a festival in italy which i've been at and perform in japan which i had just done and to me it was all theater and i had to do a little bit of work to just let her know that i wasn't going to be a thread and we're all in this together and let's just have fun so I would let her be the queen bee and let her teach me how to give myself a manicure, even though I knew how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of let her be the dominant force, and, and then it all went very well. And she was really very good at playing the scout leader. She liked to go on these field trips that I couldn't always go on, but she explored the area around Miami like nobody's business. They were always going to some tourist place, or I remember we all went to go scuba diving at Key Largo and Susan Berman and I got sunscreen in our eyes blinded for like hours. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> we thought Key Largo was going to be this, I think everybody thought it was going to be this romantic thing because of the movie with Bogart and Bacall and it was just a hideous. <laughs> Glenn also wanted to go to Six Flags Atlantis, one of those crazy Whoa. water parks and her and me and Hart Bachner, I think, and there might have been one other person. We're the only other people around at the time or would even want to go and do that. And I nearly drowned in the wave pool. Oh, gosh. I've never a wave pool before. And I swear to God, I nearly drowned in it. Wow. <laughs> I know. Play along, play along to like, okay, all in this together, right? <laughs> I don't want to go to Six Flags of Atlantis. God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of a doomsday name for a theme park in yeah <laughs> it's you know neptune and it's aquatic <laughs> i think because glenn and john were coming from such a highfalutin critical acclaim theater world i don't think they quite understood the breadth of my experience doing theater and doing alternative theater and how that was just as legitimate so sadly i feel like i did diminish myself in order to gain their approval because i wanted us to all get along because i really thought you know what we're supposed to be best friends let's be best friends you know let's uh -huh. yeah and she was great in that part i guess you could say she steals the, the film away from everybody but 
she was perfect for that part much better yeah. than i i would have been it's a testament to your acting because you just seem like besties in your scenes together they're so funny like when you two are fighting over the phone we were just cracking up i had a good time with everybody it had a bit of a summer camp vibe because people would come and go depending on when they were needed to shoot and the people who would be there on the weekend i was busy i shot almost every day so i didn't have a lot of free time and there were weekends so you would go out with groups. Glenn was really interested in bingo. <laughs> there was a bingo thing in a huge warehouse. But you know, whatever you can establish in real life and bring into the scene, if it makes the scene work better, then do it. We ended up getting along really well. And I was like, yes, it does show on the screen. And she was an incredible actress. She really yeah. was really top, top talent. I was shocked when I saw on Facebook, there was a picture of us from making Mr. Right. And then somebody's comment, oh, what a shame. I really liked her. And I, I got confused. I'm like, are they talking about me? <laughs> and then they said about dying. And I'm like, what? And then yeah. Glenn passed away. I'd see her now and then in LA at different events, but very rarely. The thing about movies is that these friendships are very real and intense, and then when the movie's done, you generally don't see the people again. It's quite strange, but I always maintained connection with Susan Seidelman and with Susan Berman. I see quite frequently out here, and we're great friends. I really adore her. She's great. Oh, that's great. We did the commentary for the film, and then Susan and I separately do on-camera interviews where we're answering questions about the movie and one of the questions was did you see any signs of sexism on the set mm. and i think when one does these things you just automatically get into a vibe we're not going to really say anything to oh. rock the boat yeah. right <laughs> so i said no not really but there was you know of course, of course I right? about it late and it wasn't specific to that movie set it's not specific to that movie it's a more complicated answer you don't want to delve into that on that kind of platform because they don't give you enough time this is why talk shows I never liked doing them it's just shtick you know and you can't really have in-depth conversations about things because they want you to say everything like Twitter now or they you know like say it in two sentences get a laugh and move on to the next thing it's like ugh. Right. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and we're seeing a whole bunch of people wanting to return to a Neanderthal way of living in terms of men dominating women. Mm -hmm. And that was something that you just took for granted. You grew up in it. You were steeped right. in it. You marinated in this. So when I look back on it, yeah, there were quite a few instances, and I don't need to get into the specifics, but there were some sexist remarks, there was some stuff, yeah. But the thing is, you took that shit for granted. Yeah. It was everywhere. The amount of times I got insulted to my face by usually men, but sometimes women, in these sort of, well, I guess they call them microaggressions now, or right. gaslighting, right? there's a host of vocabulary terms for this stuff now. You just accepted that that was part of the landscape, right? You know? mm -hmm. which is a big reason why I was so attracted to all of those renegades and the outlaws and the rebels and the avant-garde theater people. 
And, you know, I'm not saying those sexual politics weren't going on among those people. Apparently, you know, the hippie chicks had to still cook the brown rice and <laughs> right. wait on the men because they came out of the 40s and 50s where they had been seeing that done, where the women were subservient to the men. So the very act of Susan Seidelman making any film with a female protagonist was radical, particularly a female protagonist that wasn't going to adhere to the various characterization tropes that were just as accepted while I was there because the film hadn't come out. And this was the time, looking back on it, I should have done as many films as I could have before this film actually came out. Because this was the time where you're hot, right? Mm -hmm. And I would get scripts sent to me, and I probably would have had to audition, but who knows, you know? One of the scripts that was sent was Fatal Attraction. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? I remember reading this thinking, what a load of horseshit. Oh, yeah. Working woman is evil. And then seeing the movie, realizing, oh my God, they have turned her into a complete monster that they have to kill. Right. They have to kill her. <laughs> or just the trope and that it's men who have to be afraid of the woman stalking them. Like, oh, right, that thing that happens like one out of a thousand times. Oh, yeah. So after the movie came out, I was shopping in a supermarket and their Time magazine, Glenn Close, was on the cover. And the headline was the most hated woman in America. Wow. And I thought, I don't want to be that. But then you find <laughs> out she fought tooth and nail to get that part. And... In the narrative of her career, yes, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then I did Anything But Love, which has a strong female lead, Jamie mm -hmm. Lee Curtis. And I got to play the kookier version <laughs> of, I don't see the two characters as being the same at all, but uh, a working woman. And I got to be extremely eccentric, which is what I wanted to play. So is it here yet? Is what here yet? What, what, what? Willie B's diary. Honestly, it's only the most explosive celebrity kiss-and-tell book since the Bible. Who's Willie B? Oh, he's that artist. He made those underground films. He hung out in all those hip clubs. He knew people with one-word names. Oh, yeah, you know, like Halston, Charlemagne, Flipper. <laughs> anyway, he arranged to have his diaries published posthumously. They're sneaking me an advanced copy, and I don't mind telling you I'm just a soupçon nervous. Why, did you know him? Oh, please. Know him. <laughs> know him. <laughs> oh. I hope you didn't mention that time when Willie, Mick, and I were all in the bathroom of Studio 54 and I got shin splints. Actually, for that show, I said, I want to base my character on, is her name Kay Thompson in Funny Face? The number three. Oh, yeah. Pink? Yeah, so I showed everybody that number. I said, this is what I want my character to be. And I actually wrote up pages and pages of notes about the character. And I knew, since I worked in journalism as well, and I was a writer for a lot of different magazines, I knew editors, I knew writers. That's mostly who I hung out with, and, and artists and musicians, as opposed to actors. I got all these stories about editors and all the nutty things people had heard had been told of writers and wrote this whole long list of glossary terms and phrases and things and made copies and gave them to the writers as reference to build this character i love working as a collaborator to help create these characters so that was a lot of fun i got to wear crazy clothes <laughs> glenn's character in making mr right 
got to be more of the fashion plate, although I had fabulous costumes. Yes, amazing. But when I was doing anything but love, I became very, very close friends with Richard Frank, who played my assistant. And sadly, he passed away from AIDS in the early 90s. He was Juilliard trained, wonderful actor. He was in the first version that they did of Angels in America okay. in San Francisco. And then they did a workshop of it here in LA that I got to see. I've seen every version of it, and that was the best one I've ever seen. Because it was so stripped down, it was so real, so raw. He played Roy Cohn. He was brilliant. But because he was so in with the acting community, he was one of the readers for the casting sessions for Fatal Attraction. Oh, wow. And I went, really? <laughs> Do tell. And, oh, my God. He told me the funniest stories about this search for this woman to play Michael Douglas's nemesis, the evil woman right. to destroy his happy family life after he was the one who right. took his dick out. But anyway, uh, it's another discussion. <laughs> but he's told me this hilarious story where a very hot actress, I'm not going to say names because it wouldn't be my right. place to tell their story, an actress from Australia, they flew her in to do this reading with Rick, reading with her. They met like an hour before and went over the material. But before they even did that, she said to him, are they serious? about this in her right. accent and he goes yeah i think they are because they were starting to read it and she kept giggling she kept laughing at the, at the dialogue yeah <laughs> they went over it and then they went into the room and did the read through for the high-powered everybody producers <laughs> and she was not taking it seriously <laughs> and they were really pissed off <laughs> they spent all this money to fly her there and put her up and she was just basically having a vacation nice <laughs> anyway this is the other thing it's just fun to hear these stories and oh my god i've got them too but i can't tell a lot of them <laughs> but i was doing this movie with christopher walken and he was pretty intimidating as mm -hmm. only Christopher Walken could be, yes. and I thought, no, I'm going to be friends with this guy, so I was <laughs> chatty with him and asking him questions, and he was very gracious, and we ended up getting along, I heard some great stories from him, and I said, you know, you really need to write a memoir, and he said, no, you got to talk about people. <laughs> <laughs> But that was very gracious of him, and oh, yeah. although I did hear a few good ones from him. I bet. Because I was 30 years old when Making the Story came out, I ended up having auditions with a lot of people, meeting people who were notorious for being sexist, let's say. Let's use that word. But I think at that point, I was too old or I put off a vibe like, don't try it with her. It's not going to be that easy or she's not buying it or something. I was kind of went into all those meetings as if the whole thing was a lark. <laughs> because it is. It is a lark, you know. Yeah. But later in life, you realize, ooh, those were a lot of opportunities to make some good money. And I kind of blew them. But <laughs> oh, well. But then you might have some dark stories to go along with that money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very dark. Because it gets real dark you know mm -hmm. and you hear these stories people are still telling them it's an interesting profession <laughs> one of my favorite classes was theater history and film history it was taught by the same teacher who was fantastic now you're asking me about mentors mm. elliot stout he was a real big influence because he was so encouraging and he had such a cynical wit about everything he had the film annex was this 
little cottage that was on the bottom of the hill. The main university was up on a hill in Granville, Ohio, this little town in Ohio. It was beautiful beautiful town. It's like something out of a Disney, early Disney movie. And during the autumn, it's absolutely spectacularly gorgeous. So most of the classes and everything is up on the top of the hill. The theater and the film and the dance buildings were down below where they should be, right? <laughs> and somebody had been telling him, oh, I was just talking to the dean and I told him about this, that, and the other, that this program and that program. And he said, oh no, what did you do that for? <laughs> now they know what we're doing down here. <laughs> he didn't want them to know anything just get the money do his thing <laughs> yeah so he was his own kind of renegade but man was that guy smart <laughs> and he exposed me to so many fantastic concepts and films and the theater history class was so much fun i love the history of it all and so when you get to be in it you're just experiencing history as it's unfolding and hearing these stories about i'm not gonna say the name one in particular very famous for betting every woman and hearing it straight from the horse's mouth and you're like wow so it's really real it's like going to disneyland you go there's mickey oh my god i'm seeing it all in 3d and also your opportunity to study human behavior which is really my big interest how bizarre people can be and how diabolical or how funny it's just it's such a it's a whole circus it's a crazy crazy circus and it's important to not be in it without knowledge and with attachment and believe me i've been in it where i've checked those things at the door and shouldn't have you can really get swept up in the delusion and the illusion of it all then you get the moment where you're going oh right it's not real remember <laughs> it's not real right. <laughs> i've had a lot of fun adventures and i've had some not fun adventures too but that's life you know and you yeah. but susan casting me in that film was such a privilege to be able to play a sassy working woman i would like her to have been a little sassier but <laughs> that's okay it worked out fine oh more than fine <laughs> it's really exciting for me to have younger people discover it and enjoy it i don't think it was really appreciated at the time it came out and now it's finding this other audience or has found an, another audience and that's wonderful see it's worth getting old to see these things. <laughs> yeah so tell me your impressions of the film we had a great time watching it we loved like the style like your amazing little jackets and especially every woman character has her yes. own style like we loved Lori Metcalf's look was oh adorable. Yes, she was great. Yeah. I loved all the classic cars. I thought it was really interesting how each character's car was chosen and said something about that. Oh, yes. And yet it's really unusual for a film from that time period to have a working woman who isn't you have it all except love <laughs> but it's like you're not even all that fixated on it <laughs> it yeah. seems like you're, right, you're right. really like I'm just like yeah well you know yeah it's not yeah. gonna destroy me you're not Bridget Jones we have a lunchtime poll which is just a question that we ask that's related to the movie and we really liked your pairing of your sad <laughs> snack we called it of the Diet Coke and the frozen Glacia <laughs> yes that I have to say that was my idea I should have the contradictory yeah <laughs> I love it, it. Ice cream and diet coke. I'll have the diet coke, which will help. <laughs> the pint of ice cream, yeah. With all the calories <laughs> ingesting with this thing. <laughs> Susan was open for me 
create to add things. That's wonderful. Did you have input on your clothing style? To some degree, but I think that that was Adele Lutz and, and Rudy Dillon, and all of us, I think, had the same point of view coming out of downtown New York. There's the new wave style was reminiscent of the 50s and 60s. One thing I did have an input on was getting Keith Haring to draw oh. the white pumps. Oh my God, we loved wow. your Keith Haring shoes. Yes, I knew Keith, so oh, she took wow. that as a favor to me wow. on the stipulation that I get the shoes after the shoot. So I wow. still have them. I was just going to ask, do you still have them? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, the Rolodex as a <laughs> yes. Yes. Love that. That was my idea, and also picking up the arm and using it as a back scratch. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. I love, it seemed like John Malkovich was buying a car on the computer. Right, we love the computer like, shopping. Wow, this is computer so shopping. ahead of its time, you know? <laughs> yes, well, because he was so imbued with the highest IQ brain <laughs> <laughs> possible, I suppose. But yes, seeing the old computers, you really feel old when you look at that stuff and you say, wow, this is like watching some movie from the 20s and seeing an old Model T or something. <laughs> but I thought it was really smart to have this sort of Art Deco version of the technology so that it kind of makes it timeless in a way because things never really looked exactly like that. It's so heightened for the yes. time period. I said in the commentary that there there really isn't a sense of the 80s with the big hair and everything until you get to the final scenes around the pool <laughs> where yeah. the Hart Bachner character comes in and he's a famous soap star <laughs> and the girls go wild and the girls have teased up hair and outfits that are very 80s but prior to that none of the other characters they do have a, a timelessness or they live in their own kind of world their own bubble that is the world of chemtech and the making Mr. Right world that is separate from the outside world in some respects. I really love your line, I'm always late, but I'm worth it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that has sort of become a mantra of mine, because <laughs> I'm always late. So I really love that. <laughs> well, that was the screenwriters. I don't know which one wrote that. Both of them had a very whip-smart sensibility. And Susan, it's to her credit that she welcomed that. She wanted that. It wasn't like any other movie that was out there at the time, and that probably was to its box office detriment, mm -hmm. but whatever. I think it holds up now, and it's full of a lot of goodwill and charm, and I think the world could use more of that goodwill and charm. Uh -huh. Now, we don't need another movie about serial killers. <laughs> we don't need any more nihilism. You get that on Twitter. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> even the appearance of Phil Donahue is... Oh, right. You probably don't even know who that is. I remember oh, yes, him a little sir. bit, yeah. <laughs> We're all mid-40s. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's still pretty young. <laughs> I'm a little older. Than Do you have a dream project or a character type that you'd want to revisit? Well, I'll tell you, I'm in the midst of trying to put together a sequel to a video I did in 1984 called Made for TV, where I played a variety of female characters uh, all in the course of a day of television programming. Oh, it was nice. very specific to 1984, and I want to do a sequel Made for TV 2, Old Lady, where <laughs> all older women, so explore older women and their experiences and what it feels like to age and embrace that. 
how does the culture embrace or not embrace it, usually not embrace it, mm-hmm. and uh, where do we go from here, you know? I don't know how much time is left for me, and I want to make the most of it, which means I want to pick and choose what I do, put my energy into, because doing movies and TV is very stressful, and if you don't have much control over it, and they're not paying you very much, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem worthwhile to do. I've been doing more visual art and doing more music. In a way, I'm sort of going back to who I was when I first got to New York and found this great community of like-minded souls. And we just took any idea that we had and manifested it into reality and had a good time doing it and formed a community of love and respect and enthusiasm and got the bliss chemicals going in the brain and spread joy. It's all about making us feel better about being alive. There's just so much out there that's negative. Yeah. It's good to put out positive vibes. And I think that Making Mr. Right puts out a lot of positive vibes. Yeah. It's not nihilistic. There was a movie that somebody downtown New York wanted me to do prior to Making Mr. Right. And every time I got a revision of the script, it just got more and more transgressive, quote unquote, <laughs> pointlessly so. And I pulled out of it, even though they ended up using a lot of the things that came from me, oh. came from my act. But I did this instead. And, and I got some derision from certain aspects of downtown New York. They're more into the dark nihilist thing. Right. That yeah. borders on the pornographic, not even borders on it. <laughs> <laughs> and this was not that at all. Yeah. I just see the point in aesthetic competitiveness but I'm really glad that I've got to be in something that puts out some positive vibes we don't need any more negative vibes <laughs> no, yeah <we> can. right <laughs> no. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, that this was, was amazing talking to you. <laughs> Good. Well, I, I know I'm a talker, so. You just have such you a love... lovely voice, too, so it's massaging our ears. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Years ago, I had a voiceover agent, and you have to go through the same grinder to oh. try to get those parts. It's like, no. <laughs> I'm not fighting. I'm not fighting for this. Somebody right. wants me. That my contact information is on the website. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Paid and Puke is hosted by Annie Malone, Christina Barr, and Jessica Baxter. Music by Silent Partner. Additional music by Anne Magnuson. Follow us on Twitter at Paid and Puke Pod, on Instagram at Paid and Puke Seattle, and on Facebook at Paid and Puke Podcast. Thanks for listening. Baby, lick it.